Good evening. Uh, I'm Jim Broach. I am the acting director of the Institute for Integrative Genomics here at Princeton, and it's my pleasure to introduce Sidney Brenner for this three-lecture series uh, for the tonight and the next two nights. Um, this is a real pleasure. Sidney is a legend in his own time, and we're delighted to have him here. Uh, as <laughs> earth-moving to have him here. Uh, as Bob Edgar said in a recent review of Sidney's uh, autobiography, uh, the pioneers who created molecular genetics in the 1950s and 1960s were an interesting and colorful group, and none more fascinating as a scientist or as a person than Sidney Brenner. In doing the research to prepare for the uh, this introduction tonight, it became clear that almost everybody has a Sidney Brenner story. And um, I will share one or two with you, but I'm going to get off the stage as quickly as possible so Sidney can tell you his own Sidney Brenner stories, which are marvelous. Um, Sidney was born in South Africa and went to school there uh, uh, before um, going on to college. Uh, as I understood from his uh, autobiography, Sidney didn't do particularly well in school. Um, was a sort of B student. Um, and then noting sometime later the relative successes of the people that did really well in school versus the people that didn't do so well in school, he noted that the correlation wasn't very good. And in fact, uh, quipped that uh, he didn't have much use for an A student, an all-A student, unless that all-A student can prove to him that if that student had tried really hard he could be an all-B student. <laughs> um, so Sidney went, um, despite his grades, went actually uh, went on to Oxford uh, to uh, achieve his degree, went back to South Africa for a short period of time, and then came back to Cambridge, uh, to the uh, Medical Research Council at Cambridge, where uh, in 1956, where he shared an office with Francis Crick, Francis Crick of uh, Watson and Crick, the discoverers of the DNA. Uh, apparently, the room in which Francis and Sidney shared had desks which were facing each other so that it could facilitate their discussions back and forth, and that was a um, uh, source of much of the intellectual inspiration that drove the early years of molecular biology. During that period, uh, Sidney made several seminal discoveries in collaboration with Matt Nesselson and Francois Jacob. Uh, Sidney uh, demonstrated the existence of messenger RNA, a key element that is involved in converting genotype of an organism into its phenotype. Uh, later, in an experiment that every molecular biology student has learned and read backwards and forwards, Sidney used an elegant genetic test using uh, a bacteriophage to prove that the genetic code was a triplet code, a non-overlapping triplet code. This was probably the most elegant experiment that any of us have read and studied uh, in the history of molecular biology. Uh, it is absolutely a gorgeous experiment. Um, and so uh, Sidney, through these works, laid the groundwork of the early years of molecular biology but while the rest of us then began to sit down and pour over the details, Sidney said, well, basically the story is solved and I need to go off and do something more difficult. 
And at that point, uh, Sidney did something that is unrivaled by uh, almost any other scientist that I know. Knew. He created a whole new discipline, um, a whole new experimental system. Uh, he wanted to study development and decided on a new organism to study, uh, one that would be amenable to the developmental questions that he was interested in asking. And so he single-handedly uh, uh, tamed and harnessed the common uh, nematode, uh, Cinerabditis elegans, as an experimental system. At that point, C. elegans was a, a little uh, item in many uh, biology textbooks, but had not been explored in any depth. And now, as a consequence of Sidney's work, this is one of the uh, um, legs on which modern molecular biology stands. And there are certainly more than a thousand uh, scientists that now study C. elegans simply as a consequence of Sidney's having uh, decided that this was an organism that was worth pursuing. Um, but once that field got off and running, uh, Sidney decided that it could best be left to capable hands and went on to yet another career, that in genomics. And Sidney was one of the first people who called for an effort to sequence the human genome. Uh, as a consequence of his uh, effort and impetus, obviously we now have the complete uh, the first draft of the blueprint of the human genome, as well as the complete sequence of a number of other genomes, uh, which has brought us into a post-genomic era. But Sydney uh, is not even satisfied for having ushered in uh, three new beginnings uh, in 1996, recognizing that we were entering a post-genomic era. Uh, Sydney founded the Molecular Sciences Institute dedicated to try to begin to put the pieces together uh, to find a comprehensive whole of biology. Um, so Sydney has been instrumental in a number of transitions in uh, science, has driven molecular biology as no other individual has. Um, when you think about Sydney's contribution, I'm reminded of the ongoing controversy within the study of history in general uh, of the issue of whether or not uh, great men and women direct the course of history or, in fact, history picks men and women that merely um, inexorably play out the historical imperatives. Uh, the same thing is true in science. The same discussion is held in science and to a much uh, more uh, intense degree because there's a sense in science that all scientists do are sitting there revealing the truths of nature and that it doesn't matter who the scientist is because the nature is out there to be revealed. And if Watson or Crick weren't around, we would still know the structure of DNA. Well, I think Sydney is uh, the prime counterexample to the role of the scientist as merely a nursemaid to revealing the mysteries of nature. Uh, it's clear that if Sydney had not been here, science would have gone in a very different direction. We would have much less uh, uh, knowledge about certain systems than we do now, and it would certainly be less rich uh, from the perspective of uh, bringing humor and thought uh, into uh, science. So Sydney is 
a person that has driven science, uh, not been driven by science. Um, and finally, in closing, uh, before introducing Sydney, before bringing Sydney up, I just want to quote from the uh, statement from the uh, Lasker Award, which Sydney won uh, two years ago, which states that Sydney has woven a colorful and richly textured scientific tapestry from threads of intense curiosity, imagination, intellect, and determination. His legacy reaches into many areas of inquiry and promises to stretch well into the future. So it's with great pleasure that we welcome Sidney Brenner to give us a, a series of talks on biology after the Genome Project. Well, Madam President, I believe that's the way you should address and friends. Doesn't mean Shirley's an enemy, of course. I'm delighted to come here to talk to you in the post-genomic era as a lone voice from the pre-genomic era, because I think that what I have to say will be quite important. I believe, for how our subject is going to develop in the future. And I'm delighted to come here and uh, because, to me, Princeton does represent a kind of chain in my thinking and in my history, uh, which I would like to tell you about tonight. In 1972... 30 years ago, I came to a conference here at the Institute of Advanced Study to celebrate the, I think it was the 25th anniversary of the invention of the computer by John von Neumann, a great scientist and I believe a great man as well. You might say, you know, What's a kind of molecular biologist doing in a place like this? I think at the time, many people were beginning to become interested as to whether there was going to be in biology something equivalent to theoretical physics, to a kind of intellectual endeavor that celebrated enormous changes in our view of the physical world in the last century and whether the Institute of Advanced Study should do something about this. And I gave a talk there, uh, which I still have. It was really about protein structure was really about the concept of the active center, which I had just begun to really think about in terms of how would we look at all of the functioning of cells and molecules in the biological world. And I was very proud because the great Gödel attended my 
meet. He only attended two sessions of that, mine and a session which was a previous student of his called Rabin. So he attended this. It was midsummer. He was dressed in an overcoat, which I thought was a little bit excessive. And I sat down after him. He asked me to talk to him after this. And what my talk, it was the first sort of theoretical thing I'd attempted, which was to try to uh, elaborate in a rather general sense how, why biology, biological systems are so effective. And uh, this talk said how biological systems had learned essentially not to be defeated by the combinatorial explosion but to use it. And it was the whole concept of the active site of an enzyme. And I said to him, explaining what this was, I said, well, we have this immense sort of uh, field of molecular collisions happening at enormous frequency, nanosecond frequencies. We have a system which ignores 99% of the collisions, but when it's in the right place, namely when the chemical component binds to the active center, it's registered. And he asked me how did this, how, you know, how I explained all the things about specificity of recognition, what these, what these enzymes could do. And uh, Marvin Minsky, who's a computer scientist, was with me at the time. And Gödel looked at me and he said, he said, that is the end of vitalism. And I'll never forget this because I think that, is, that was the end of vitalism because it presented a view of how all this immense complexity could be handled strictly within the terms of standard physics. We didn't have to assume any rather special thing about atomic, about molecular recognition. And I think what I would like to do in these three lectures is basically to continue that theme because at that stage I had identified a project which I called the TOES project, T-O-E-S, and which was really stood for the theory of elaborate systems. And I got very interested in, first of all, does such a theory exist? Can we say we can deal with all elaborate systems under some kind of general theoretical view? <laughs> and secondly, I mean, is there any application that we could attach to biological systems. Now those interests have continued throughout uh, my endeavors in other subjects because and have become more interesting in the last few years. Because in the last few years 
people have become to recognize that we now have the power in biology <coughs> to give complete descriptions of anything. In other words, the whole concept of sequencing could be applied. We could sequence everything in the universe. But the question has now become very critically raised is, do we understand it? And so it becomes very important, I think, at the present moment in the development of the subject to start to ask rather deep and sometimes critical questions about where we are with understanding. And that is why my first lecture is entitled From Data to Knowledge. Because I think that is the great task of biology, is to convert data into knowledge. Now it turns out that there's a confusion of nomenclature because some people think that data is knowledge. But in fact, it is belied because then their task is, how do we get from knowledge to understanding? Uh, the word for knowledge and the word for science has the same root. Science is knowledge and science is understanding. Data is data, it's just a collection. So I think it becomes very critical for us to understand what are we going to do with this vast collection of data that's being produced day by day, night by night. In fact, we are always inventing new techniques of getting more data. And I think it has come time in this period of science to examine what it is we're going to do with all of this because it is preaching a new mode of science. As I think everybody in the field will know that there are these slogans that more is better. Why should I do one experiment when I can do a thousand at the same time? So I think particularly for young people entering the field of biology, it is important that I think they have everything available to understand what this new science is all about. And so I, as I said before, being a rather lone voice from the pre-genomic era, have come to preach to you that about the future of biology and what I think about. And that's what these three lectures are going to be about. Now first I should say that I gave these three lectures as a tryout in New York last year. In fact, I was rather proud because I understand when you have a new Broadway play before you perform it in New York, you perform it in Princeton. So I was very proud to say, well, I've got these important lectures that I'm going to do in Princeton, and I'm going to do the tryout in the Rockefeller Institute. And I think they were fairly successful, I don't know. Uh, but let it remain to be seen how you can, uh, this whole issue. So, 
It's very complicated because, and I will try and illustrate my point of view in the subsequent lectures. So the first lecture is rather philosophical. So you will hear people that will argue such things that the whole is more than the sum of the parts. They will argue for emergent knowledge. You cannot tell systems from their components because new properties emerge as you put a lot of these things together. You will hear all kinds of things which are essentially anti-reductionism and saying we have to study the system as such. And I want to examine these in some detail from the peculiar stance of biology. And what I want to say right at the beginning is that there are two very important constraints on how we think about biological systems. First of all, and both of these are essentially genetic. First of all, and I'll put it as crudely as I can so you can see it, first of all, biological systems are the only complex systems in nature which contain an internal description. The weather is complex, but there's no internal description of the weather. We contain, all of us living creatures, contain an internal description of ourselves in the form of our genes. Uh, and I'll illustrate this by a story that I once was in Japan listening to a Buddhist priest. It took twice as long to listen to him because his lecture in Japanese, which was twice as long as the translation into English, had to be translated into English. And so eventually someone asked him, what do Buddhists think of a life? What is a life? What is living? And of course, in true uh, kind of Buddhist explanation, because everything is possible, he said, well, he said, some Buddhists think everything is alive. Mountains are alive. Rivers are alive. So I said, mountains are not alive. Now, he was a smart guy because he said, how do you know? <laughs> and I said, you can't clone a mountain. Okay. So he said, what do you mean? So then I gave him a kind of quick sort of DNA talk, you see. <laughs> but in fact, I think that is the deep, there is a deep answer there. The mountain, although for all its complexity, is something generated by the laws of physics. You know, mountains have a certain shape it's because the earth moves in certain ways, rivers move in another way, and it is a consequence of the laws of the physics. Biological systems are indeed compatible with the laws of the physics, but they are of a consequence of a coded representation of the organism. 
That's why a mountain is not alive, because a mountain has no DNA to say, you will be this kind of mountain. And I think that that is the first fundamental difference that we have to make in our minds between complex systems. And let me put this, that people say, well, you've got to take into account chaos. So I, I say, what is chaos? They say, well, you know, it is that you can't predict what is the outcome. So I said, well, look, if you can't predict what is the outcome, that is useless to biological organisms. In fact, their problem is how to avoid chaos. Okay? Because if they can't use it, they, they're not interested in it. So I think that is one of the conditions you will see which will play through. The other thing you have to realize is biological systems are not the consequence of design. They are the consequences of evolution. Right? And I put this in the following stark terms. Nobody in the street today believes in what we tell them about evolution. Why? Because their whole lives are conditioned on complex things which are like the things they know, which are the products of design. So, inverting the problem, we are trying to tell people, look, we can, by random mutation, change a black and white television set into a color television set. That's what we're really telling them in those terms. And of course they say, no, that'll never work. Because I know every time you tamper with the television set, you break it. <laughs> That's the most likely outcome of designed complex objects is you break them. And that is why evolution is looked at very askance by ordinary people because they do not understand that designed objects have a certain set of constraints which evolved objects do not have. And it's our task to explain the difference between those two. In fact, if you like, for those who believe that the natural world has been designed, we have already the counter-argument against it. Because if it were designed, it would get nowhere. You know, it would be behaving like the airlines in America today. Nothing would work. So, I think that that's... So, the consequences of the intrinsic organization, both of biological information and biological implementation, suggests very strongly to me that we have to take a completely different view of this than we would in other analogous cases, whether it be physical theory or the theory of engineering design. So, I believe that once you start from that, then the field has to find its own theory from within. In other words, there's going to be no other exemplars. In other words, you know, we can't say, well, 
biological system will look like a bank, for example. If we understood how banks worked, we'd understand how biological systems work. What you find is that people trying to find out how banks work are actually approaching biologists and say, can we learn from you how to organize our banks better? Because it seems biological systems are quite effective. So, we are faced here then with complexity which is looking for, has a huge amount of data, and what we really need to do is to try to find out how to get knowledge. So I want to, in this talk tonight, try to explain how I think we can evaluate when we have knowledge. When, when is it do you say, yes, I understand? Because that's what everybody wants to know. If you go to many meetings, you will find people say, I want to understand signal transduction. I want to understand how it works. Or I want to understand the cell cycle. Or whatever biological thing, people say, I want to understand it. Now, let me suggest what they mean by this. They mean that they would have sufficient knowledge and understanding of this that they could predict outcomes correctly which have not yet been seen. Okay? And I think that is the task of science. Science is not just a recorder of everything that is. It actually claims to predict the future. It actually says. And this, I think, is quite important. In fact, it was a test that von Neumann made many, many years ago. And it is. And he said that when you do not have a meta-theory in order to pose the theory of the objects, then the best thing you can do is to find a proscription of the device that generates the same behavior. Right? So a successful proscription would say, the device read computer program. In other words, it's said that for something like pattern recognition, we have no way to discuss pattern recognition in any higher terms. That's what's his statement. And therefore, what we should do is find the class of devices that can recognize patterns because they will throw light on the general theory of pattern recognition. And that was a claim he made. I still think it's very valuable to think in those terms. Now, what does this mean? See? And... I think that this is something that is, uh, is basically very important because it begins to, uh, you begin to ask questions such as the following. When do I know? In fact, it's a question I asked with regard to the nervous system of the elegans. I said, how will I know 
that I can, that I have an understanding of this nervous system. Let me hasten to add that that problem has not been solved. Right? I did pose it. I said, well, could we compute behavior from the wiring diagram? In other words, if I sat down and said, this neuron is wired to this neuron, then could I actually say that I could compute behavior? In other words, I would have an end to the asking of questions of description. See? Because the standard thing in behavior is, how does this organism behave in such and such circumstances? Well, you can put the organism into that, ex that circumstance and report the behavior. That's an observation. But if I start to ask rather strange questions, like if I put this organism on the undersurface of a satellite in orbit, how would it behave? I'm giving this extreme example. That is a situation we cannot easily realize in the real world. But if you could realize it in the Gedanken world, then you would have an understanding. So I think what is very important is this whole question of computation of behavior. Now, I'd like to make a big distinction between this form of computation and the one that has become very common in biology over the last five years under bioinformatics and so on. And I hope that in the course of these lectures you'll see the difference between this and what people call bioinformatics. So, if I ask then, could I compute behavior from wiring diagrams, we have to start to ask ourselves, what are wiring diagrams? Now, a great wiring diagram are, in fact, the genes of the organism. So, if I had that, if I had that information, could I start to predict how organisms develop and, indeed, could I start to ask questions and answer questions of the following sort if I made these changes? You know, how would that, what would that organism look like? Because this is scientific testing. And indeed, to go rather further, to imagine a, an examination paper of uh, 2070, which could be describe the genetic program to make a centaur. Okay? I mean, or prove the impossibility of a genetic program to make a centaur. And it's worthwhile thinking quite hard about that, because, of course, centaurs are six-limbed animals. They have two torsos, one on top of the other. You have a lot of problems how you link the digestive systems, okay? Because sort of the colon of the horse, the colon of the man enters the esophagus of the horse. There are a lot of problems when you think about this. 
two thoracic cages. I mean, who's breathing, you know, and so on. Of course, the Greeks were very naive. They thought the way you make centers is you sort of cut a man off, you know, you cut his body around about the umbilicus and you kind of stick it onto a horse. His neck has been cut off. They hadn't realized that you make a double thorax animal. But I think it's worthwhile thinking, and now, of course, everybody knows that those questions are today unanswerable. But I think they are very good tests for what I will call understanding. So, once I have introduced this idea of computation, I have to introduce a second idea. Right? A student of mine, uh, Jonathan Hodgkin, once showed me a program he'd written about how to have worms wriggling on a, on a screen. And I asked myself, well, what is that program all about? And so I said, well, give me the program, let me look at it. And of course, it was just full of cos theta, sine theta. So it was not a simulation of worm movement, but just another sort of more graphic description of it. And the reason I could say that is it didn't use the machine language of the worm. That is, I couldn't find in his program that there were these neurons connected with these neurons, that there were these synapses with such and such delays, that the muscles had this elasticity, and that all of that stuff in there computed the behavior. So, the first lesson I think is very important to assimilate, and it goes much further than this trivial example, is a simulation should not be an imitation. And of course, when you apply this to the rather classic argument of what has come to be called the Turing test, which is that you put someone in a room and you ask him various questions, and you don't know whether he's a machine or a person. Okay, the Turing test is if you can't tell the difference, okay, then those two are equivalents, the Turing test of an intelligent machine. Now I think it's the, the test is of whether a machine is smart enough to imitate a person, not to generate the behavior in logically equivalent way. I mean, because a machine might do it just by having a good memory of what works. Okay, so I feel you've got to understand this whole complex that in fact there is a coded representation of the final organism and that the organism is computed from this coded representation and in the end, that whole complex has to be understood before we can call it uh, a science and that we could then begin to say that if you left out this gene, that is what will happen. And if you wanted to make a better organism, that is what 
that will happen. So, when I was young, I spent a lot of time thinking, what mathematics would I need, you know, to become a great theoretician in biology? Of course, you know, being a theoretician is very, very attractive. You don't have to come to the lab every morning and contend with a kind of messy biological experiment. And, of course, I chose all the wrong things 30, 40 years ago. But I'm now convinced that the mathematics is that of the mathematics of computation. So the view that I take is is essentially quite straightforward. It's consistent with many, many things, which you will see as we as we do in the later talks, that we have the idea of that the machinery at one level computes the outcome at the next level. In other words, we become practical, and I call them the practical reductionists. That is, we're not concerned whether, in principle, Schrodinger's equation explains the whole universe. We're quite willing to accept that's a good possibility. But we are asking, how can I use Schrodinger's equation to build a bridge? If you can't tell me that, I'm not interested in Schrodinger's equation. Right? So I am one of those people that most French philosophers think even more disgusting than an empiricist. I am a constructivist. Right? I believe that one level is constructed, computed, if you like, out of the material at the previous level. That's a, and otherwise, I think if you don't believe that, you've got to be a vitalist. Okay, so that's it. That's all we got to go by. As uh, the famous remark says, there's nobody here but us genes. Nobody else. That's what evolution works on. That's what makes us, and our task as biologists is to lend to some understanding of that. Now, of course, we now have a whole new vogue in how we make observations in biology. In other words, uh, the whole business of the kind of classical experiment the Klobuchar experiment is being challenged by a group of people who say you should measure everything and then let the data generate the answer. Right? In other words, whatever is there will emerge from the data. Uh, these are people who, uh, one of the leaders is what I call the head of the Brownian movement in California, Pat Brown. These are people who say, make all the measurements, find some way of looking at the results, let the results tell you what it is. They used to talk of hypothesis, that they were against hypothesis-driven science. They now, I believe, call it hypothesis-limited science. 
Okay? In other words, they want to measure everything and let the world decide. Now, let me try to state why in principle I believe that must be wrong. Because the question I am interested in, just as a simple question is, when I accumulate this data, how much of it is noise and how much of it is information? Okay, it's very important because, now, by noise, I, I don't mean instrumental noise, you know, whether they can tell that this is twofold or not twofold. But what I mean is the kind of noise produced by the biological system itself. Let me try and explain what I mean by this. So, everybody's interested in these patterns of gene expression. All right, so now we ask ourselves, suppose, suppose that each level, and we have, you know, perhaps a 100,000 points of this, that each level was precisely fixed, was your actual integer, which was determined plus or minus kind of physical variation. So the next question we ask is, what would it take to do that, to specify an exact number for 100,000 components? And it may be true that we indeed do this, but, but many examples in bi biology show that there are three values in this, which is, which is yes, no, and don't care. In other words, you can express genes in certain circumstances, and I can give you positive examples where it doesn't matter, because if it did matter, it would mean that evolution would have to generate a value there that said, put it off here. And I'd like to just give you the general example of how to think about this. Suppose we have, in the complex of the tissues that higher organisms have the following circumstances. Let us specify that this gene is on in all the, say, 200 different cells of the body except one. Well, you know, on grounds of economy, the thing to do is to say, well, turn it on everywhere with the general mechanism and subtract it from the one that you don't want it on by a repressor. That's the cheapest way to do it, rather than making a positive statement for everything, having in fact say, you've got to be on in the pancreas, and on the liver, and on this, but not in this. So what you have is a global statement, be on, except in. Right? And we realize all you have to do for that is just develop one repressor mechanism, one repressor recognition. It's also true for something that's off everywhere except in one or a few cells. So that you would just say, well, be off until I tell you to be on. That is how evolution would economize on the information. 
Now, of course, when it gets complicated is when this, these statements, which are essentially nonlinear Boolean functions, saying be off in this and on in that, but not in this, would require then the expansion of more and more orthogonal regulatory information. And the question we have to ask ourselves is that if everything is specified and it is very variable, evolution would have to develop an enormously complex way of specifying that. And of course, one way of escaping from that is the don't care condition. That is, it doesn't matter. You can be on in here, or you can be off, it's going to have no change. And evolution, I can promise you, will take this path. And there are many examples showing you that that happens all the time. I can give you ones very readily that are documented in the literature. For example, the expression of encephalins in lymphocytes which has led to the presumed field of neuroimmunology that you would put these on, but is very clearly the field that I'm talking about, which is don't care. You don't have to specify to turn off these genes, because these are all immediate earlies in lymphocytes, because they ain't the mechanism to get the functional protein, which you have to have because there's several enzymes and a secretory apparatus. It just isn't there in a lymphocyte. So it ain't going anywhere. And if you like, retrospectively, you would say there'd be no selection against this. It doesn't cost anything. So you're going to find lots of these don't care conditions, and if in looking at this you ascribe everything with the same value, you're going to get into trouble because they're going to look over complex. So we have to have a mechanism of serving what I call biological noise. In other words, it's the don't matter thing. And if you're trying to fit this into the general course of an emergent kind of structure, you're going to get into difficulty. There are going to be lots of exceptions, lots of complications. So, that's the first thing we have to be conscious of in, in, in our observations. That many things whether they tenfold up or fivefold down are going to have no consequence, which by definition there would be no evolutionary reason to fix that as a quantity. And I, I believe that a lot of biological information is exactly that and is completely useless and would clutter up these enormous databases. Well, I just would go now to say that what we're trying to do by making multiple observations is a kind of science that is known in other subjects. It is called causation by Bayesian analysis of observational data. Now, for years, centuries, biology has been 
granted the gift of intervention. You know, we can cut off things, we can make mutations in genes, we can remove proteins with antibodies, and we can see what happens. We have a way of intervening in the processes of nature and studying the consequences. It's called the experimental method. Now, there are some subjects where you can't do experiments. For example, like the origin and history of the universe. You can't say, well, you know, let's go back to the beginning, let's leave out this thing and see what happens. The weather is something you can't intervene with. You know, you can't say, well, I think I'll stop that hurricane down there in the Caribbean and see, see what happens. Financial systems are another thing in which it's, or as I used to say, they always kept on doing experiments, but they weren't controlled, <laughs> basically. But in fact, you can't intervene and deduce causality from your intervention. So for these subjects, there is a whole field of that has arisen, and I think many people in computer science will know this, that you try then to make predictions on past behavior, what you think are the important causal features for future behavior. And certainly I know that in the stock market that doesn't work. I mean, we have pretty good evidence that's very hard to dissect out causality without having detailed control experiments. Now, we are being asked to treat biological systems in this way. We are being told you don't have to do experiments. You just simply see what it generates, and then that might lead you. They've now agreed that that might lead you to more experiments. But I think that we are going to find it very difficult to deduce causality from this, because it's very hard in biological systems to distinguish cause and effect. I mean, what is a consequence of the original effect and what is what generates the original effect is very hard to distinguish this until you have a theory of how things work and until you have an intervention in it that is meaningful. The other day I heard a talk of one of these Petter Array people who said uh, that they had so much data that the only place they could store this in was to go to Walmart. Okay, you know, I didn't know who Walmart was, but I discovered they are the biggest supermarket in the world, and they record, record every day. This must be the biggest array of all time. You know, what people buy and what they sell and inventories. And I thought it's pretty good. Suppose you had all of Walmart's information. I mean, it's very interesting to think, what could you deduce about the dynamics of the American economy? 
you know, from a fact that more baked beans were sold in, let's say, this town in Texas than there were in this town in Iowa. So I think it's worthwhile to ponder on this, and I think I am most unwilling to agree to something which says, forget about experimental intervention. Our job then is to describe the system in terms of generators, at least that's the way I would look at it. What are the wiring diagrams that count? They are the wiring diagrams of the generators. They're not the wiring diagrams of what happens. Okay? Because that is not going to tell us anything. We have to know about causes. And that, I think, is going to be the most important thing in the future. Well, what are the prospects, we may ask, for generating a theoretical biology based on computation? In about a month's time, a book will appear written by Steve Wolfram, uh, the actual Fondorf Mathematica, in which he argues that everything in the world is built on computation, that computation is the fundamental theory for all science. He calls it a new kind of science. I think it's a kind of old kind of biology, actually, that we have to follow. And I think that it still remains to be seen whether we could produce this program in some kind of detail so that we can do it. And that is what I hope to discuss some examples in the next two lectures. I think it does remain the fundamental future of biology that I think that we have to go to a theory because otherwise I see no way of unifying it except to get it in some sort of library form that we can all read it. And I think that the most important parts of biological science of the future will be for this theoretical advancement, which I think is the most important task that we face. So, uh, exactly how this will be done, well, I'm very happy to say, because I believe we shouldn't try and solve all problems in this generation. We need to leave everything to our successors. I'm very happy to leave this great task to all the younger people here today. But it's the younger people who will solve this problem in the future. And I believe that all the great advances in biology simply give us the clay in which we will build these important objects in the future. And the most important thing that we can do as the older generation is to make sure that we can capture the youth that are coming through 
to show them what I think will be the challenging intellectual problems of the next 50 years. I thank you for inviting me and for listening to me. Thank you very much. Arthur Myram, uh, uh, presently affiliated with the uh, University of Southern California. Enjoyed your presentation very much. Uh, I'd like to call to your attention, if I may, a, uh, a few papers to you on the subject of going from data to knowledge. That is actually having to do with the scientific method. And I think that most of us in, in the field, uh, the, the papers appeared in the uh, joint proceedings of the American Association for Advancement of Science and the Society for Gen General Systems Research. Uh, the, the first thing after data or after observation is insight. That is, there's an insight, and that's that aha phenomenon, I think, which you're, you know we're all familiar with. But before you reach real knowledge or understanding, you first of all have to make sure that whatever you've discovered or your insight, that you can convey this in a lucid manner to other people. So the first test is can you make sure that it's perfectly well understood. And the second course is that, well, what about confirmation? Uh, you sort of alluded to that in the sense of uh, uh, you have to be able to make predictions that that is any logical deduction you follow from you that would follow from accepting the insight has to follow or therefore you you don 't confirm the theory and as a result of a lot of confirmation et cetera, then we have what we call knowledge do you do you have any comments about uh, where you would you be moving uh, to talk about that in your next lectures or yeah well I think uh, all I can say that uh, I, I didn't know about this field, and I found it through the books of someone called uh, Judah Pal, who is a great expert on, compute, on, this, on this area. And there's a lot of people in the social and economic sciences that have to rely on observation. They have no other choice. So I think it's, I think it's very interesting, and an insight should be testable. See, that's what I think. Insight is a guess. It's a hypothesis that you have discerned, if you like, an interaction amongst objects in the thing that produce results, outcomes. It's what I would call a computation. And my comment is uh, that if that is valuable enough to give valid predictions, then I would call it an insight. Otherwise, I wouldn't call it an insight. Uh, uh, I'm not a biologist, so uh, you have to bear with me with my ignorance. <laughs> um, you spoke of uh, Compatibility with uh, with existing physics laws. Yeah, and you also gave me the impression that could be wrong. My wrong impression is that these new things or the the so-called internals uh, growth or internal formation of the biosystem cannot be it cannot stem out from existing physics laws. Is that right? I mean, if 
if indeed that is so, do, they, do you mean that there will be new laws of physics? We no. 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 It, it only means that it's, it's rather stupid to try and compute chemistry from the Schrodinger equation. The chemistry is consistent with the Schrodinger equation, but to try and predict how nickel, you know, would give you this color precipitate from the Schrodinger equation is not what we want. And there won't be new physical new laws. So I think you have to, so that's my argument. My argument is that people have felt that since these things cannot be readily done this way, that basically uh, there have to be new laws of physics. I don't believe there have to be new laws of physics. I think all the machines that we see in nature have to be consistent with the laws of physics, but they have, if you like, they're not law-bound, they're not law-generated. Okay? They are just contingent exercises, which, which of course do not deny the law of thermodynamics, but somehow get around them. Okay, so I think the old search that many people felt, and still some physicists do with regard to such phenomena as consciousness, that there will be new laws of physics, that they will find, I personally don't believe that that is correct. Um, may, may I ask a, a second, perhaps related question? Um, you spoke of efficiency. You spoke of uh, economize. Now, um, when, uh, say, people use such a word or such words, it has certain system in mind. The system has two requirements. One is uh, what is the constraint on the system. Second, what are you economizing on? What is the parameter you are economizing on? So can you tell us? Yeah, I think it's very clear in biological systems. The big thing in the game is to have as many descendants as you can have. It's called natural selection. That is the measure of success, is to leave more copies of your genome behind. Now, that's all we can measure. That's natural selection. Survival of the fittest. It is different from the survival of the survivors, which is what physics is all about. Okay, and we can give you very well-defined circumstances which say that those two things are different, very different, and they are different in the sense that whereas the survival of the survivors is a statistical thing, which means that if we ran that experiment again, we'd have different survivors. Survival of the fittest imp implies a value function on reproduction, namely some things reproduce better than others, and therefore if we ran that experiment again, we'd get the same answer. So I can give you very well-defined differences in the behavior of the system to distinguish between that. Uh, and that is all these examples of economy, of it's, it's sort of all wrapped up with something that I know sounds as though I'm explaining 
the cause by the effect, but it isn't. It says there is a value function in there which says these organisms have a higher probability of surviving given that contingent environment than anything else. And that's, that's the evolutionary principle. Okay. Oh, I, I do not know what is the constraint of when this system is trieconomy. Well, the constraint is, uh, uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it is, it is the num, if you like, it's mathematically the number of genomes you leave behind. That's all. Okay, because you realize that most of the genomes that have ever existed are no longer here. They've all been eliminated. I mean, that's something you have to really grasp, that most of the organisms, most of the genomes, are just no longer with us. We see a tiny fraction of all possibilities, right? Which says that in terms of looking at it as population, it's a very extreme, small fraction which have made it to today. Right? And they've made it because their genomes produced organisms that were better, left more progeny in those environments. Okay. Thank you. Physics, it's non, that's a non-physical law, correct. So we've had, yeah. Sydney, over yeah. here. I was intrigued by your suggestion that there is a reasonable number of genes that are not on or off but really don't care. Uh, that goes somewhat as a heretical view that us biologists take that the system has been finely honed to be as efficient as possible and that it only does what it needs to do. Uh, you gave one example. I'll give you another example. It's a great, it's a great favorite of mine because I think it's it's bizarre example, right? So you take the eye of a frog, the presumptive bit of epithelium of a frog, and you transplant it to the tail. Right? And so the retina develops and the optic neurons grow back to the cord, not randomly, but grow up in one of the spinal tracts. Very specific one. Okay, so you say, my God, you know, if I were designing an eye, I'd make sure wouldn't grow up the spinal tract, it wouldn't grow into your knee joint, it's got to be an eye. But of course, it never has to get, it never gets sort of on your rear end. Okay, so here by putting it in the rear end, we find that the specificity is meaningful in this calliculus, okay, up the spinal cord. So do we say that I mean, the perfect guy would say an eye is an eye, and you just don't grow anywhere else. So if we put you somewhere else, you'd be confused. But of course, it's obviously very specific, but not excluded by the genetic program. 
right? Because it just happens that only in the rare example of some idiot plucking out the iron, sticking it to the tail, that we see the specificity in advance. And I know that that is an extreme example, but it is what I say is that's a don't care condition. You do not have to say this neuron will not recognize that protein. Okay, and I think there are lots of examples that way, and we will find more and more. So our idea that everything is positively, exactly specified, I believe is wrong. I believe that nature has to pay a tremendous price for, we haven't yet investigated that price for specificity of regulation, and we'll tend to avoid it. We'll tend to avoid it. We'll only do what is necessary. I mean, Sydney, one of the dilemmas that you know well of experimental geneticists is coping with uh, the way in which we intrude into systems genetically and often find no consequence and could therefore conclude that that is a doesn't care uh, situation. But the uncertainty that we're always left with is that that doesn't matter under the laboratory conditions Precisely. under which we have studied the organism. And were we to throw that poor organism into the local pond and wait a year, we would discover that that organism without that gene that doesn't matter in the laboratory would no longer exist in the pond. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think that's a big problem because of this transplantation of organisms into this very comfortable environment where they fed every day and so on, we find many genes seem to have no function. And we keep on talking about redundancy. Now, we can take two views of redundancy, which is one that I don't agree with, which is nature knows there are going to be a lot of problems. You know, like if you send a spaceship to, to uh, the moon, you can have a lot of problems. So it's better to have three computers in case one fails. I mean, that's the classic redundancy. And then take a vote of the three, and as long as two agree, you'll follow that. Those are compensations that we put into these things. So people like to think, well, you know, nature's also thinking life is like be going to the moon. Better have three genes that do the same thing. And then if one gets knocked out, I've still got two to carry on with. But I think what Shirley points, what has been pointed out, is I think very important, which is that we have a non, we have a non, uh, we have a non-normal, an abnormal environment. We have the environment of the lab. And it is absolutely clear you can knock out a lot of genes and those organisms are okay. So all we can say is 
this plus this plus this under these conditions have this effect. We also know that we can take an inbred line of my mouse, we can knock out a gene, and when we cross that mouse to the world outside and introduce the huge variation that exists, we can get everything, all kinds of phenotypes. So I think, you know, we have a lot of things that we will have to work on to try to explain all these levels of interaction. And it's not going to be this one-to-one simple account. So I think we like to, you know, we like to say that it's all all or none. But I think the complex interactions, all of which are, all of which have arisen because of the nature of evolution. In other words, that when you have a system that regulates and you want to stop something, it is far better to invent a protein that binds to one of the proteins sitting at that site and switches it off. In other words, you gain complexity by accretion and not by going back to the, the drawing board. The whole idea that everything is, you know, set out there and, and written out as in the form of a declaration is wrong because everything there has been by patch, by bodge, by just because if they didn't do that, they wouldn't be here to, to, for us to do. So I think that that is in the nature of biological systems and I think we have to take that into account. Additional questions or comments? I have a very uh, a little off-topic type of question, but I was wondering if you thought that human beings had escaped uh, the, the confines of evolution or had developed a, an, another uh, avenue where they, uh, they, the forces of evolution don't express quite the same way as they do in other organisms. And also, what would be the advantage for an individual organism to continue to struggle to uh, carry on its uh, uh, genetic progeny when uh, it has no individual uh, assistance to the organism itself? In other words, there's no benefit to the individual organism to pass their genes on, at least well, to the individual. Yeah. Well, I understand that, you see, because human beings are very different. They have escaped, but because they have learned to intervene positively in the environment. So that's a very different situation. We are, amongst all biological organisms, the most capable of modifying our environments. And in fact, Geneticists such as Bill Hamilton went so far as to say we ought to stop modern science and modern medicine interfering with biological evolution. Therefore, he did at one stage suggest, I think half jokingly, that we should kill people who have survived because, you know, they have offended. They have only done this because they had access to superior medicine. So, I mean, that's a consequence of that thing. I don't, I don't accept that. 
I think what, what you mustn't think of is everybody struggling to survive. I mean, that's a very human thing. You know, we struggle to survive. We struggle to get enough money to pay our income tax or, or to pay lawyers to help us avoid income tax or whatever it is. It is that the struggle for existence is a kind of post hoc uh, superposition of what it is because everybody is just what they are. And question is, survival is survival. The ones that did, didn't struggle harder than the ones that didn't. I mean, that's a very human thing. That contains intentionality, which no genome can achieve, you see. So I think you have to be careful about this. No, man has, man, ourselves have something which is new we have the tremendous advantage of what you might call cultural evolution. Now, we are not limited by biology anymore. In fact, not only that, but we can limit the biology of other species by our intervention. Uh, so that is something which is an, on a different plane. And I think needs to be, needs to be discussed because we have gone from being, you know, the kind of victims of natural engineering into the perpetrators of artificial engineering. In other words, we can modify things. That raises a whole new level of activity, which I think it is right for us to ask how far is that rooted in and compatible with biological evolution. I think it's a very important thing to do. But it's got nothing to do, I think, with genes directly or the problems we are trying to solve within this biological world. Other questions or comments? Just a quick observation. If we take this data and reach knowledge from it, won't the use of that knowledge further intensify the artificial changes in evolution? Well, I think you raise a very interesting question, which is, of course, many biological scientists have confronted, I mean, as a personal issue, which is, I mean, do I... You know, if I have a great idea, do I actually implement it? Or do I think twice? Biologists have gone through this issue several times on questions of genetic engineering. I mean, I can give you my personal view about this, which I think really boiled down to the following, that the it is a myth, it is a it is a myth that the choice of implementation rests with one person. In other words, it's a kind of myth that you are sitting there isolated and you decide this will be of benefit to the world or this will destroy the world and I choose to do one or the other. 
never mind which one. I think that's a myth, because the application of science is not based on that kind of all or none phenomenon. It's a social phenomenon. Right? So when uh, at many discussions I was accused of reporters as, you know, polluting the environment, scientists had brought all this evil on the world, I had to point out to the reporter, it wasn't me, it was his mother who was polluting the environment, you know. She was putting all these things down the drain. It wasn't her fault, it was, you know, and the, the whole advertising, the whole economics of science application. So we are... I think we are, and I actually do not believe that there are those moments of truth that you could make this decision or even a group of you could make this decision. And I would like to say also in this connection that I think when scientists say, I will never, I will never modify the genome of man, I think they might think quite hard, and I've thought about this, there are conditions where I would. I would actually say that that's not even, for example, if let's say I had a technique which could in fact, by putting in the genome, give me a kind of genetic vaccine against AIDS, I would have no doubt about it that I would be doing greater good with that in Africa when I read what's going to happen and what is happening with that disease. So I don't want to say I would never will. Never will is saying, I mean, that is, I would do it under certain circumstances. So I think that those choices are very important. We should all, we all have to make them. But I think it is a myth that we can, you know, deny this information by, by us making a singular choice. I think that's a kind of fantasy that scientists like to play out. You said that uh, knowledge when can actually derive when we can actually, when we can actually uh, derive causation from something. Sure. So I was wondering, to a degree, how this, how you can reconcile this with fate in terms of when we know enough about something, will we be able to predict? Sure. In I terms mean, of that is the faith of science, if you like. I, I, it's it's just to me, it just seems. I like to think that I have free will, but it just seems as though... No, you have free will. No, there's n I'm not taking away your free will at all. What's your name, Will? <laughs> you remain free. All I'm saying is that when I isolate a system of nature and I understand it fully enough, if I have the real knowledge to compute the outcome, then that's when I'll be able to do it. Now, I'm not saying that you are determined, 
you know, that for you, I will be able to write what you're going to do tomorrow and the next day and the same way. Because you're a guy based on contingency. If you don't feel like getting up tomorrow morning, you're not going to get up. So I'd be pretty wrong by predicting you're going to get up at 8 o'clock, make yourself a cup of coffee, go to classes. Because tomorrow you just might feel, no, what the hell, I'm going to stay in bed and, you know, read a novel. Maybe you are in English literature, so that would be called working, yes. However, but I'm just trying to say, for the objects that we have to deal with, we have never, none of us, even the most die-hard believers in causation like myself, do not believe, you know, in, uh, in horse racing, for example. It's going to be pretty hard. See, see, the only way to win at roulette is to try and buy all the tickets. Basically, that's what biology does. It doesn't predict the outcome. It doesn't compute the outcome. Everybody knows that in certain events you can't do it. Okay, so I think we, we realize this, and you needn't worry. I mean, free will, there's still a hell of a lot of it, including... The freedom not to not to do science, if you like. I think with that we will thank Sydney for. Yeah. <laughs>